two pictures were taken in South Sudan in uh, 2002 and 2003 during the Second uh, Civil War. Uh, in my work as a field delegate, I encountered very many challenging situations and it was certainly experience that uh, shaped my life. Upon my arrival in Europe, I read this paragraph in a book and it said, groups such as the South Sudanese suffer systematic discrimination that might well meet the definition of apartheid. This was the beginning uh, of a long, long thought process uh, and finally uh, ended in an application for a PhD research fellowship at the University of Oslo with the title, The Crime Against Humanity of Apartheid Under Special Consideration of the Conflict in South Sudan. That was the project I was hired for. And when I started researching, which was for me a, a new topic, um, of course, one encounters South Africa's apartheid regime. Uh, so this is what most people understood by the term of apartheid. And also it originates the term itself in the South African apartheid regime. Apartheid is also used in a non-legal way of describing discriminatory practices like here, for example, sexual apartheid, the caste system as India's apartheid or education apartheid. A bit more of a legal take to the to apartheid as a as a le as a legal notion is uh, this UN uh, special rapporteur report on North Korea that was published in 2014, where the rapporteur in a public speech mentioned that North Korea was in fact a apartheid regime. However, in the published report, it was not mentioned. The word does not appear. And of course, the more common, most common case is this one here. Richard Falk, the then uh, special rapporteur of uh, the occupied territories in his report of 2014, performed a legal anal analysis of the situation in the occupied territories and concluded that the crime against humanity of apartheid was committed there. This was also uh, the conclusion of a recently uh, published uh, report in 2000 or here in mid-January by a human rights group. So of the current uh, situations in the world, probably apartheid is the one term that is used most frequently with regards to Israel. But then in my research, I was trying to figure out what apartheid really is in legal terms. And it was not very easy to find out because so far there has never been a prosecution for the crime, not in South Africa nor anywhere else. So how can I define a crime if it, there's never ever been a judgment rendered? It did also not figure in any of the previous statutes of the ad hoc criminal tribunals, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, the ICTY, or the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, the ICTR. The term uh, or the crime uh, of apartheid was introduced into the Rome statute only in a last minute compromise during the Rome conference uh, in 1998. 
eight. This is widely considered a diplomatic or political compromise in order to honor the victims of the apartheid regime. Remember that the first democratic elections in South Africa were uh, held in 1994 and the Rome Diplomatic Conference took place only four years later. So it was still relatively fresh. And this was a very appropriate way of honoring the victims. The legal definition of the crime uh, poses numerous challenges and I will not uh, bother you with all of them. Uh, the crime itself is defined as uh, committed in uh, institutionalized regime of systematic oppression and domination by one racial group over any other racial group. Um, there are a number of challenges with the other terms, um, but when I started looking at the racial group, the elements of crimes were not able to help me because they do in fact not further discuss what racial groups are in the term of this crime. So I turned to scholarship, legal scholarship on the crime against humanity of uh, apartheid is very, very scarce. And it was even more so at the time when I started uh, researching uh, for this PhD project. Some scholars suggested turning to the genocide convention because that also contains the term racial group. Yet others said turn to human rights law because their racial discrimination, which is not quite the same, but racial discrimination is more broadly defined as any uh, discrimination based upon race, color, descent, national or ethnic origin. So it's a much broader concept of race. Yet other scholars said, well, race, that's just the old fashioned way of calling something or what is nowadays called ethnicity. Yet others said, take an anthropological perspective and yet others look at biology. So I was left with a, a number of uh, very confusing suggestions on how to interpret this term. In looking then into the genocide, uh, into the law of genocide, um, that's when I started digging deeper and deeper and deeper into the term of racial. And the term of race is contained in three provisions in the Rome Statute. And the deeper I dug, the more I realized I'm not really researching what I was employed to do, but I was actually researching the concept of race in international criminal law. So I changed the focus of my thesis, had to unfortunately submit a new project proposal because I suddenly had narrowed the focus uh, dramatically. And my uh, thesis was then published in a revised and shortened version uh, in 2019. But then again, what is race? I'll provide you with a short historical backdrop. The white race is superior to the others and is found in Europe and America. This picture comes from a children's book. And the concept of race is undoubtedly connected to colonialism because it was white people discovering uncharted territories with new other people. Other people that they had to 
classify as of a lesser value in order then to justify the subjugation and their exploitation. This was the time when the creation of the so-called five, uh, five um, groups of or five races of mankind happened. As you can see in this picture here, um, the, the European man, elegantly dressed, sophisticated, places himself in the middle of the picture and around him the other four uh, indigenous races of mankind. And that Eurocentric picture remains very strong in a racialized understanding of people. It also influenced science in a very, to a very large extent. We are entering the time of social Darwinism. Here, uh, a picture from Norway. The man standing measuring with a special tool the head size of a woman is a Norwegian anthropologist called Alfred Mjön. The people standing and sitting around the table are the Sami indigenous people. He performed head measurements of the Sami, here also with a, another tool, same man talking with a Sami. The ideas that Darwin created in order to classify the animal kingdom or biology were then transformed to people. And the Mjön, uh, that's the Norwegian uh, anthropologist here, he created these placards with, uh, with comparisons of measurements between the Lap, which was the name at the time for the Sami, and the Norwegians. So he compares here, for example, the size of the head, the eye colors, body size, and hair color. And the problem is not that the measurements were performed. The problem is the comparison. And by comparing, they created hierarchies. In this particular case, of course, in the eyes of this Mjön and the majority Norwegian population, the Norwegians were the superior people. The Sami were considered inferior based upon anthropological measurements. We are entering the age of race hygiene. This is a publication of 1921. Better babies, race, infant welfare and race progress, published in 1921. And as shocking as this might seem for us today, this was completely ordinary and recognized scholarship at the time very widely disseminated and very widely embraced. Another uh, publication in 1921 by a professor who says, I deem it probable that crossing between widely differing races leads to degeneration. We have also examples of this in the vegetable kingdom. So, so understand what is happening here. They're taking knowledge from biology, plants, and transforming it onto people. And they're creating racial hierarchies in doing so. You probably understand where this is heading. This is heading to the science of eugenics. This is again a placard by uh, Mjön and his laboratory of so-called unharmonic race crossings. 
So what the scientists, uh, and those are in uh, primarily physical anthropologists, uh, concluded is that races should not, not mix because it will lead to degeneration. And it also led to a, a new science where one was encouraged to keep the so-called races as clean as possible. And you can see a, a similar uh, a figure of uh, thought in, for example, the, the Jim Crow legislation where it was about one drop of blood or apartheid, where it is as soon as you mix bloods, that's when, it, when the races are seen as unharmonic or crossed. And of course, the consequences, especially of uh, ideas like this, are extremely grave. The mass sterilization, for example, of the Roma originated directly from things, thinking or thought processes like this here, uh, eugenics and um, race crossing um, scholarship. And also we know where it ended. It ended in publications like, for example, this one here, uh, published in the German uh, Reich, as you uh, can see. The text is not very well uh, visible, but it uh, on the my left side it says uh, about the Jews, they are the leader of the subhumans, whereas the Germans in uniform uh, are presented as the fighter for the noble and the good. So what you do is not only you create races, you also give them certain stereotypes and create prejudices according to which group a person belongs to. This thoughts, these kind of thoughts were also transformed into children publication. This is a children's book that was published uh, prior to the Second World War. Jews are here unwanted, it says on the picture. And also look at the way the people are drawn. It is the two little blonde or many other little blonde Aryan children playing and then the Jews, their noses are drawn in a much uh, profiled way. It is about creating stereotypes of people. This publication here juxtaposes German use versus Jewish use, and it bears the title Aus dem Gesicht spricht die Seele der Rasse. From the soul, uh, from the face speaks the soul of the race. So you might look like a person, but actually you are not. That's what the idea was here in, uh, in the Jewish understanding of, uh, in, sorry, my apologies, in the Aryan understanding of Jews, that they belong to another race. So let's do talk about the elephant in the room. But why should we? Why should we talk about the elephant? Why it is a lot easier to ignore and focus on other group categories rather than having to deal with a very contested and very difficult concept such as race. Race has been tainted by history, uh, as we have seen from the pictures. So wouldn't it just be easier if we could ignore the elephant? I argue that because of the principle of effectiveness, uh, which is one of the core principles of treaty interpretation, we have to deal with every, uh, with every 
term. It compels us to deal with race. So the word of race is in a, in a number of treaties. Amongst others, the Genocide Convention, the Apartheid Convention, the Rome Statute, the Ad Hoc uh, Tribunals uh, Statutes, the term is contained and it is not supposed to be interpreted as lacking a meaning or a purpose. Rather, we should interpret them in order to giving it a meaning, to attribute a meaning to the racial group. Because, for example, if you imagine the crime against humanity of apartheid, if you do not and cannot interpret the word of racial group, there is no other group to revert to. It's the only one that the law provides. Let us for now focus on the law of genocide. Um, this is the standard uh, definition, which is also reflected in the ICC statute and the ad hoc tribunals, and most actually also uh, national uh, legislations on the crime of genocide. And as you can see, it protects four groups only, the national, ethnical, racial, and religious group. And the group, it seems, is contained in the mens rea, which is the so-called special intent. It's the intent to destroy a group, but also in the actus reus. So it's the killing of the group or causing harm to members of the group. And I will return to the group element later because it is very important for the definition of the crime. So if one turns to the Vienna Convention on the law of treaties and tries to figure out, well, what then is the ordinary meaning of uh, race or racial group, uh, it becomes nearly impossible because no matter which discipline you turn to, you will get a different de uh, definition. Anthropology uses a different one than the social sciences uh, like sociology or so social psychology. Biology yet uses another one. And maybe law has yet to, uh, one more. So it was impossible to really find the core of the meaning of race or racial group. So it is probably a wise step to go back to the preparatory works, because if you define race as in the original way it was used when in times of colonialism with the so-called five uh, groups of mankind, five races of mankind, I think it would lead to an absolutely manifestly absurd result. You cannot classify people into coherent groups of races. There is no biological DNA or there's no DNA for race. So if we look at how uh, the drafting process occurred, um, of course, genocide and the crime of genocide was heavily influenced by the writing of Raphael Lemkin, who later took part in the, in the committee for the Genocide Convention on uh, behalf of uh, the United States. He termed the word genocide as a combination of genos, which is an ancient uh, word for, or ancient Greek for race or tribe, and side, which is the suffix of kaedre, the old Latin word for killing. So the, the term of race is already included into the word of genocide. It is the killing of a race or the killing of a tribe. And in the time when he wrote his book, uh, which, which was the foundation for the, the creation of the crime, 
he understood and people uh, around him, there are many examples, race is a combination of both uh, an understanding of people belonging to a nation state, but also being subgroups of people. For example, he talks about the Polish race or the Jewish race. And this was uncontested. This was the way one referred to groups belonging to different countries. And in the case of the Jews, many different countries, but maybe what we would term ethnicity nowadays. But there was also an inbaked notion of hereditary biological uh, understanding of races. When the Genocide Convention was drafted uh, and adopted in 1948, race and for the matter of sake, none of the three other categories was defined. And there are some indications from the, from the preparatory works that this was done purposely. And since it was done purposely, one can argue that an evolutive uh, development has uh, occurred. So it leaves the term open to develop in the course of time in order to adjust to an understanding that might have changed from 1948 to today. I argue that race evolved to a pure perception-based concept. And I will um, uh, lead you uh, through uh, this understanding. So recall the convention was adopted in 1948 and it took 50 years until the first ever judgment on the crime of genocide was rendered. We had to wait for 50 years until a court was forced to uh, interpret the law of genocide. 100 days of killing in Rwanda led to the establishment of the ICTR. And the court was uh, given the very difficult task of classifying the primarily Hutu vict uh, Tutsi, vic Tutsi victims, my apologies, as one of four groups. And it defined the national group as a collection of people based on common citizenships. Citizenship, so it juxtaposes citizenship with nationality. Ethnic group are people who share a common language or culture. Religious group share the same religion. So it's somewhat of a circular definition, denomination or mode of worship. And finally, the racial group, hereditary physical traits often identified with a geographical region. The court did not provide any sources for these four definitions except for the national group where it refers to the ICJ Notebom uh, judgment. What it tried to do here is create a legal, or a, excuse me, an objective category for the different groups, uh, an objective definition, where it would be easy to place the different victims into different groups. However, it already ran into trouble because of the Tutsis, because the Tutsis and the Hutus did share uh, their uh, citizenship. They had the same language and culture. They more or less sh shared the same religions. So what would they then be? Race? Well, there are some authors that argue that there has been a racialized understanding of the Tutsi group prior to the genocide. But we do not have to enter that path now. So by creating this objective approach to the groups, um, 
Akayesu started a, a, a larger process because it led also its sister tribunal, the ICTY, only one year later to conclude that defining groups using objective and scientifically irreproachable criteria would be a perilous exercise whose result would not necessarily correspond to the perception of the persons concerned. So Yelisic clearly moves to the perception of a person's group membership. This sentence does not show who the person is. Is it the perpetrator? Is it the victim? Is it a third par party? But it then is a bit more precise and says, well, it is in fact more appropriate to evaluate the status of the group from the point of view of those persons who wish to single that group out. So they clearly move the focus to the perpetrator. And they rightfully recognize that it is the stigmatization which allows to, be, to determine whether a group is a group in the eyes of the alleged perpetrator. This was a very progressive uh, interpretation, especially uh, considering the, the Akayesu judgment only one year earlier. And it seems the ICTR was influenced but what, what, about what was happening in the ICTY, because four years later in Kajeli Jeli, it held, well, yes, of course, membership of a group is a subjective rather than an objective concept where the victim is perceived by the perpetrator as belonging to a group slated for destruction. However, it also demanded some kind of objective criteria and it never made clear what those criteria are. If we move on to the quasi-judicial view and look at what the International Commission of inquiry on Darfur in the report right. The report has notably no legal force, but it was led, uh, the, the commission was led by uh, Antonio Cassese, one of the fathers of modern international criminal law, and did perform a legal analysis. So there is a legal value to their um, analysis. And also the report was used by the ICC in the indictment of al-Bashir, uh, later on. It said that the approach has evolved to taking into account that collective identities are by their very nature social constructs. So they're imagined identities entirely dependent on perceptions. And what is what is very nice here, it is uh, the the commission takes inspiration from the very famous book of Benedict Anderson uh, on imagined communities, and it transforms it into law. It then also says that uh, the process of formation of this perception can harden. So from being initially subjective and one doesn't quite know where it's going, it becomes hardened and it crystallizes into a real factual opposition. And then the two opposing groups become visible. So if we try to look at the different approaches that, uh, that exist or that could exist, um, I try to create uh, an overview here and I tried to place the different 
judgments. Uh, surprisingly, not one single judgment ever took a victim based approach, so where the victim perceives him or herself as member of a certain group. And the majority of the cases are perpetrator based, uh, so it's the middle part. However, they demand some kind of objective elements that unfortunately usually remain undefined. I argue uh, that all of those cases should be moved over into the pure subjective approach where it's only the perpetrator's perception that uh, counts. Why is that a problem or why has it not been done? Well, because subjectivity sits at odds with legal predictability. So remember, even if the perpetrator has an idea of what the groups are like, they still have to be coherent to the groups that the law puts at our disposition. We only have four to choose from. So in any case, we will have to classify the groups as one of the four protected groups in order to both prosecute a genocidaire, but also to provide uh, protection to victims. And since the group, uh, in our case, the racial group appears to be in the Octus Reus, one could wonder whether it also demands an objective determination. But then how can you objectively determine a group if it only is created in the fantasy of a person's mind? Or shall we turn it around and say, well, does the group at all have to be objectively definable? Perception, and I argue not only perception, but any mental element is, of course, a challenge to international criminal jurisprudence. And why is that so? Foremost, because of the principle of legality. The, the law has to be foreseeable and specific enough. And also because of the procedural rights of the accused, he or she has to know what he's accused of. So you cannot just suddenly create some uh, groups that uh, nobody has ever heard of and that uh, originate in the fantasy of a person. The courts have to be able to render verifiable judgments that show some kind of coherence in the way they're applied to different cases. And not least, how do you prove perception? I will now bring you from the law into the social sciences. And why do I do that? Because I believe the social sciences understanding of genocide uh, is highly relevant for the legal uh, interpretation of the crime. Interconnected also the understanding of racial groups or racial, uh, racialized uh, discrimination. Genocide is an identity-based crime uh, where there are two or several competing groups. So the group notion, again, is very important to understand the crime as whole. The individual is attacked not for being who he is in his own right, but for being member of a group. That also makes the individual replaceable because you're just one of many. You're just being targeted because you belong to a group or a presumed group. This uh, is based on what uh, social sciences often call the othering. It's the creation of negative um, identities. It's us, our group, the in-group, and them, it's the out-group. 
And that is visible in any uh, genocide, also pre-genocide, where those group categories are created. And that is also what the Darfur Commission, for example, noted. Um, social psychology, uh, and more specifically, the social identity theory, has found out that just the perception of belonging to different groups without actually belonging to them is sufficient to trigger intergroup discrimination where you favor your own group. It's us. We. We have to go first because we count more. We are more valuable. And you see it's again this hierarchical thinking that we are on a different level or on a better level and more valuable than the others. The competition is very important because it creates the groups and it then escalates the groups. So you, you create a process that can hardly be stopped because the more you identify as S, the more you will see the others as inc incompatible with your own group. And it's not only the groups, but you, you give the group certain characteristics, whether they're real or not, doesn't matter, because you assign them values and prejudice, and they're seen as of a lesser value. And by being of a lesser value, of course, they become much more susceptible to attacks. They're just people of a lesser value, so they, they don't really matter as much as our valuable group. So the, the other group uh, is um, seen, is perceived as containing some immutable characteristics. Those characteristics cannot be changed because they belong to your personality, to your group personality. And since they cannot be changed, the members cannot really be assimilated to your own group because it's something that is innate, at least in the understanding of the perpetrators. So that innate characteristic that cannot be changed uh, constitutes a threat in the eyes of the perpetrator and therefore often uh, is, is uh, preemptively goes into a defense mode where the other group is attacked uh, and in the case of genocide also with the intent to be destroyed. So there is uh, an understanding of the other group as uh, threatful, and that is created based on stigma. Uh, and as we have seen in the picture, uh, in in the in the earlier pictures of the Jews, the victim group is seen as maybe they look like people, but what they really are, they're subhuman. Here, in the case of a, a publication uh, where the Jews are seen as gift filth, uh, so it's the poisonous mushroom or here as rats. But also, for example, in the case of uh, Rwanda in a publication several years before the genocide, where in the writing at the bottom, the Tutsis are compared to Inyenzi Ntutsi, so it is the cockroach Tutsis, and you can clearly see the picture of uh, Machete. Or here, where a patient is lying on at the doctor's office and says, I'm sick, doctor. And the doctor says, well, what's your sickness? The Tutsi, the Tutsi, the Tutsi. So what is it? The, the, the group, the group of others, the out group, the victim group uh, is perceived as something that does not, that is um, 
a sickness. It's not real. It's subhuman. And you see it commonly in the way language is used when uh, victim groups are mentioned in publications or elsewhere. In the case of Armenia, for example, a doctor who was involved uh, in the killings of the Armenians and he was asked why he as a doctor could murder, he answered, the Armenians had become hazardous microbes in the body of his country. Well, isn't it a doctor's duty to kill microbes? And by presenting the Armenians in this case as something scary, dangerous, that's a threat to your country, it's a lot easier to justify attacking them. They're not people anyway, they're microbes, they're, they're, they have to be eradicated. There's been a lot of research on how those genocidal processes uh, occur uh, and a, a contested one, I admit, uh, but nonetheless useful tool is the eight stages of genocide by uh, Gregory Stanton, where there are some early warning signs and then uh, and all of those different stages do occur, although not linearly, but they do occur at one point or another um, prior or during uh, genocide. So for example, classification. We have here a picture from uh, 1720. Uh, so it's a very old one uh, where the different people of Europe are compared. And in what is my uh, left side uh, is, is the Spaniards and they are seen as male and wise. And then on the opposite side, you have the Turks and the Greeks, and I have to move away the picture here, where it says they are tender, but also lazy. This is a classification of people. This is trying to create some objective framework into which you place people. And it's certainly not meant in an evil way, but it is very dangerous. This was a classification in the case of Rwanda, where you in the identity cards see the ethnicity of the person, which makes it much more easy to single them out. So in roadblocks in Rwanda, they would check the ID cards and then just took out whoever had Tutsi marked in their ID card. Symbolization, the symbols are very strong uh, way of singling out people. Here in the case of the German Reich, the the J, the red J for Jew, or of course, the yellow star of David. And again, dehumanization here uh, from Poland where Jews in a, in a poster were uh, described as lice. So it is creating this subhuman understanding of the victims. But we don't have to look at genocides only. I can show you two very recent publications. Welcome to Europe, it says. And the Muslims crossing the European borders are portrayed as rats. They're crossing the borders. And you also see there's a picture of one uh, man carrying an AK-47. So not only are they subhuman, they're rats, but they're also a threat. They're carrying weapons into Europe. And the next one is disturbing, but this is a very recent one. And I don't think I will have to comment it any further.
the important part about this is that it is the perpetrator who controls the identity creation of the victims. The victims is, uh, has no influence on how the perpetrator perceives him or herself. So it is inherently perpetrator driven and therefore subjective. In many cases, or I would say in most cases, the victim is reduced to one identity marker. In the case of uh, the Jews, it was a racial understanding. It was not a religious understanding, but it was race. And one can also see that in other uh, genocides. Um, the stigmatization of the perpetrator then will reveal the way he perceives the victims. And talking in legal terms, that would then be the intent to destroy a group. So it's the special, uh, the special intent or the mens rea. And how will we figure out what the perception is? Well, by looking at the behavior of the per per uh, perpetrator. The perception will be revealed in the way the perpetrator speaks, what he publishes, uh, for example, uh, comments, uh, utterances, uh, it can actions as well, of course. And that behavior then will make the group uh, objectively identifiable in terms of law. So for a court of law, that's where you should start looking. Um, If we, if we try to show this as a, as a process uh, where we have the perpetrator uh, with his definitional power over the victims, that would be his special intent because he creates the victims. And then his creation will be shown in the way he behaves, in the stigmatization, in the dehumanization, the way he labels, what kind of prejudices he has towards the group. And then, of course, that behavior makes the group objectively definable. Whether the group exists or not is another question. So is it at the end only an issue of proof? I will revert to what uh, Jelicic said, in the eyes of the perpetrator. And I believe what comes closest to a feasible uh, solution is what Muhimana, the ICTR judgment of 2005 said, the prosecution has the burden of proving either that the group uh, that the victim belonged to the targeted group or that the perpetrator believed that the victim belonged to the group for the case of race i do not believe one is able to prove that someone belongs to a racial group because there is no such thing as an objective racial group there are no races of mankind but if the perpetrator believed that his victims has a different racial uh, being, then it would be possible to classify the victims as belonging to a racial group. So if the perpetrator perceives his victims as members of a group with a different race, in my view, they do acquire protection under the Genocide Convention, irrespective of their actual group membership and irrespective of so-called objective elements that the courts have uh, demanded. But we do we can we can transform this uh, kind of logic uh, if we want 
to other crimes as well. And I'm now pulling you a bit out of the international criminal law side into other areas of law. So if we have the pyramid of hope at the apex is genocide, the same logic can also apply it, be applied to acts of discrimination, for example. And I will show you two very recent cases. Uh, a judgment that was rendered by the Danish uh, Supreme Court last week, uh, no, it's probably more than a week ago now, uh, held that an understanding of the perpetrators of the victims as non-Western uh, migrants, asylum seekers and refugees was not racism. So they acquitted the perpetrators because they said the group of non-Western uh, migrants, refugees and asylum seekers could not be classified objectively as belonging to the same group. And of course, in my view, that is a very narrow reading of race or racial group or racial discrimination, because in the view of those uh, of those uh, perpetrators who who were distributing uh, a so-called asylum spray uh, in the streets of a Danish city, the victims very much belonged to a coherent group. They knew exactly who they're talking about. And uh, let's face it, they were talking about the Muslim immigrants to Denmark who they considered a, a threat uh, and also in their political uh, pamphlets, for example, said that they were a threat or a danger to the Danish women. So you have again this understanding of the others as being dangerous, threat, and you give them a, a stigma as being rapists, for example, in this particular case. So I think in this very uh, case here, the da Danish Supreme Court did a too narrow reading of the law. Here a case from Norway. A man wrote this comment on a public Facebook page. Hello, they, do, they belong on the Vida, not here with their ridiculous clown costumes they're marching around in. If you smell lighter fluid, a Sami is not far away with his one meter 30 and his smell of fire. The perpetrator's understanding, uh, he was convicted, uh, I must say, his understanding is heavily influenced by the, and informed also by the racialized science from the early 20th century that I have showed to you earlier. This is the understanding that the Sami indigenous group or the Lop, as they were called at that time, are a backward development of mankind, that they are inferior, that they're childish. This is the thinking, the understanding of a whole group that lingers and is very visible in those uh, hateful comments that are published online. So if we return to this case, uh, according to the perpetrator, and this is uh, parts of the judgment, the Sami do not belong to the civilized parts of Norway and actually not to the rest of the world either. Uh, he asked them to go to hell and then uh, a lot of uh, other lovely words. Uh, and luckily, the Supreme Court of Norway did recognize that these comments are just yet an extension of an understanding of the Sami as being of a lesser value, of being inferior, of being not as valuable as the majority Norwegian population. So they, they concluded that it was a gross denigration of the Sami 
as an ethnic minority. The racialized thinking uh, was not highlighted in this judgment, which uh, in my opinion is wrong too, because the Norwegian domestic law does not protect racial groups, but only hate speech based on skin color, which is a very, very narrow uh, way of looking at things. And we must also know that in most cases, the victims, both in this cases, but also in the other ones earlier presented, belong to minority groups that already experience increased discrimination. Here in the case of the Sami, in a in a what I hope is a very developed and progressive country such as Norway, a tenfold discrimination compared to the majority population. This is a huge problem that lingers and has also to do with the racialized understanding. The Human Rights Committee uh, concluded the same. There is a persistence of hate crimes in Norway and it is concerned about the under-reporting of crimes. But Norway is by no means alone because a huge EU survey found that one in four from minority and immigrant groups have been victim of racially motivated crimes. This, these are huge numbers if you look at the European Union as a whole. And another problem that is connected is that the perpetrator's bias is not reported. And the bias is this stigmatization, this perception, this understanding of hierarchies of lesser value of why they are supposed to be so different. And according to the jurisprudence of the European Court of Human Rights, overlooking that bias motivation amounts to the violation of the right to protection from discrimination. So I'm now bringing you into the human rights side of this problem. It is important that racially motivated crimes are understood as such. They're based on a perception of inferiority, hierarchical thinking, and based on perceived or real characteristics. And I will end with a picture. Do you see a little man playing a saxophone? Or do you see a woman's face? Because we don't see things as they are. We see them as we are. Thank you for your attention. <laughs>